You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. I'm Brian O'Neill, and today we have Greg Nelson from Vident Health on the line. Hey, Greg, how's it going? Ah, uh, good afternoon. I hope you're uh, warmer than I am. I'm freezing already. I'm I'm ready for Arizona here coming up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a it's a beautiful blue sky day in North Carolina. All right, excellent. Well, uh, today we're gonna uh, we're gonna nerd out to some analytics and health stuff today. So Greg is the VP of Analytics and Strategy at Vident Health, uh, and you've you've also authored the Analytics Lifecycle Toolkit. Uh, and I, I wanted to chat with you a little bit today about health data. Um, there's there's a lot going on in this space. And my my first question uh, to you is, uh, I, I want to give you a chance to kind of introduce who you are and what you do, but I feel like health healthcare is such a gigantic mess. It's just <laughs> all over the it's just there's so many factors like there's technology issues and ethics pieces and 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 motivate uh what do you call it the the motivations in place like a, a lot of the issues are not even technical I'm sure it's the incentives that are in place. How do you deal? How do you live through this? Like, <laughs> how do you make a difference when there's so many things that you can't control? I guess. What's your, <laughs> what's your take? Do you just like, hey, we're only going to try to, this is our little mo, our little hill over here, and we're going to win this battle knowing that we can't win the war? Or like, what? oh, no, no, like, we're absolutely about winning the war. Um, I think for me, so I'm a recovering social psychologist, and one of the things that you, so you talked about incentives. Um, and I think for me, it's it's actually kind of like a puzzle and you're trying to figure out what are the incentives at play, who is being motivated to do what. And, and as you've described, healthcare is in, incredibly complex. Um, the people that pay for healthcare aren't always the people who receive healthcare um, and people are incentivized or maybe even see part of the customer journey that leads to health and wellness. And so I, I view this big landscape of healthcare as being uh, just right because of the level of complexity to keep it interesting for me. Mm -hmm. tell, tell us about the part of the puzzle then that, that you're working on at Vident. Like what's, what's your role there and, and what's your puzzle piece look like? Yeah. So it's a big puzzle. Uh, it's one of those 4,000 piece puzzles you get. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and half the pieces are missing, which, which makes it even more interesting. Um, so my role uh, is, is I lead uh, the enterprise data and analytics team here at Biden. Um, and I have operational responsibility for all of our data systems, which include operational data systems, data movement systems, data capture and, and monitoring. I also manage enterprise information management, which includes things like governance, data governance, and um, data integrity, information security and privacy. Data science and BI uh, falls within under my remit. Uh, and one area that I just am always excited about talking about is uh, our analytics product management and enablement group, uh, which is which is helping make sure we build the right products for the right reasons, and we enable users to to get um, the most out of those. Got it. So the analytics product and enablement group, how? How do you, you, I think you said something along the lines of like making sure they're building the right products for the right people. So 
how, how does one go about making sure they're doing that in, in an sure. enterprise space? So we've introduced um, product management as a discipline uh, and a, uh, a skill set here at Biden. Uh, it's brand new. And really a lot of what I talked about in my book was how do you create, and much like what you talk about with, with your content, how do you create data products that are human-centered and usable um, all too often? And I think you and I talked before about this is, is this notion that, you know, we build products. And, you know, when I got here, we were right in the midst of decommissioning 10,000 reports, you know, many of which were, were lightly used or never used. And so the question becomes, in a, in a world of limited resources, how do you make sure we're actually building the things that matter and that will get used? Um, and so product management focuses the light on use case centered approaches and uh, design thinking to, uh, to, to actually come up with and craft um, the, the right data products that, uh, that start with empathy, right? Uh, that, and that's kind of what we have been trying to, uh, to teach and do as part of our practice. Um, and that extends, of course, with both data products, the durable data products that you might see like um, uh, reports or AI models, but also to services. Uh, so how one experiences our enablement programs, for example, is a designed service. Um, so it's been fun. So uh, would you say you're, is, is this a going from a unintentional, like sometimes I think about, I, I try to talk about the design process to, to non-designers when we're talking about design thinking as, as being very intentional about the outputs and the thing, the products and things and tools and applications we're building as opposed to kind of like, well, this is kind of what emerged. And, you know, at the end we did a little bit of, we polished the, the turd as it sometimes is. Uh, right. This is about being very intentional throughout the process. But I feel like sometimes with, with technical people, it can feel a little bit like hand wavy or kind of squishy. It's not real. It's not like very scientific. How do you, how do you uh, build in a, a culture that wants to do this in a place that I assume you have a lot of technical people working, uh, especially yeah. in the analytics area? How do you do that? Well, I like, the, I like your word of, of use uh, choice there of being intentional. Uh, and we talk about that all the time. It's, it's being purposeful and intentional and, and transparent about what we're doing. Um, I think, I think the uh, another way to talk about that is we have been engaged in lots of activities over several years, um, and activities, as you know, don't always lead to outcomes. And so, our focus is um, to try to avert the urgent uh, in, in lieu of the important, and really focus on what are the outcomes we want to achieve. One way, one of the ways we've done that is uh, to try to use a use-case, human-centered approach to actually designing the needs, uh, fulfilling the needs for an organization. Um, and as an example, we recently uh, did a gap assessment. There was some new technology being added on to our electronic health record. Uh, the business was quite concerned because they were moving away from old, old, older technology, which was tried and true for them. Um, and they were concerned about none of the new applications would meet their needs, both in terms of operational workflows, but more importantly, in terms of the decisions they needed. They needed to be able to uh, move patients around our system more efficiently than they've ever been able to do before. And so we approach that using design thinking to craft um, what, you know, as a, so as a bed manager or as a transfer uh, nurse, um, I need to, and that helps define what is the decision support need. And then so that I can 
in the so what so that I can piece was actually the most important because that really focused on the outcome. Uh, instead of saying, hey, I need a report. Can you add another column and sort it by this that only gets looked at once? We're able to then focus our energies on building the prioritized products um, based on the so what question. And to me, that was fun. It, and it changes the narrative so that it, it and, I, and I think our technical staff, to your point, we like building things that people use. Um, I know when I was doing a lot of technical work, that was motivating. I could see how many hits my my site got or uh, how many times an AI model ran and predicted the right thing. Um, that was fun for me. And I think our technical folks are no different than that. They want to see real utilization of data products. Sure. I mean, it's also it's just a lot more fun to work on stuff people care about. And you start to feel like you're making a, especially if you're in healthcare, right? And you're, you're, you could probably feel like a cog in this giant, you know, this giant system. But when you start seeing how it makes a difference in someone's life, you know, potentially literally uh, in the healthcare space, it, it's, I, I think it provides fuel to keep doing things that way instead of kind of falling back in the old way. Uh, and, and I liked how you, so for people that maybe aren't familiar with this kind of Mad Libs uh, template that you're talking about, the, uh, you know, as a role, I need to do X so that Y outcome happens. The so that Y part is so often missed. <laughs> I think there's a lot of stuff that's built just with the, maybe the beginning part as a whatever, I want to do X, period, end of story. And there's no evaluation of what experience is needed in order to facilitate that kind of last piece uh, and that that's so critical and so is there a is there an example you can give us uh, the listeners about maybe the the old way things were being done and how when you tried this like there was a particular learning moment that happened or you saw a light bulb change for somebody or you had a different outcome on the project because of this I, i'm yeah. in before after kind of yeah i think the I think the proof is in the pudding. So the jury's still out on the latest example that that I shared with you. Uh-huh. But but another example, and I won't go into the details too much. Um, but historically, people deliver data, and I talk a lot about whole brain thinking and whole problem thinking. And when we understand the whole problem, the whole why about someone's job, we recognize pretty quickly why Apple was so successful with their initial iPod is that it didn't solve just the problem of storage, didn't solve just the problem of finding music, and didn't solve the problem of, of listening to music on the go. It actually solved a whole system of problems for people. And so uh, a good example is, is you know, as, as most healthcare companies are facing today, there's a nurse shortage. We can't afford to lose the nurses that we have can't hire them fast enough. And if we if we don't take care of them, it will continue to represent financial challenges for any health system who has to pay contractor traveling uh, nurses, which we know that that's just a fact of life with, with changing demographics. And, and so before our leadership was getting one report from one department, another report from another department, generating another report internally, and, and a fourth one was being calculated at the end of shifts uh, literally on on the back of uh, the back of paper uh, and being keyed into another tool. Um, whole problem thinking is understanding those personas and actually working with them to understand. Tell us where you sit in this process and what part of that problem are you trying to solve? You know, as as we grow up as a system with almost two billion um, patients uh, at, at, at over 
spread over 29 counties, we have a tremendous responsibility to our team members and our patients. And so helping them become more efficient and being human-centered increases team engagement, team satisfaction, patient satisfaction, and, but also it just ex- it reduces the friction and accelerates the opportunity to make decisions in a more timely way. And, and to me, that's the fun part. That's the, that's the piece that keeps me coming back every day. Mm-hmm. You mentioned product product management was a, is it a new function. Is that what you were saying? Yes. What was it before and what was the, the, the indicator that made someone say, oh, we actually need this to be a separate organization? Like someone doesn't just wake up and say, we need product now. <laughs> how, sure. how did that come about? Well, so that was being driven primarily from me and, and begging and pleading for, for an additional resource that could focus on this. And the uh-huh. key message there was that we need to move from projects to products. And one of the manifestations of that, uh, of what necessitated that move was um, our customers expected an ongoing dialogue and a relationship about product maturity and durability and change that our project teams um, when we do, you know, projects, they're defined for a reason, you know, they have a purpose, they have a beginning, they have an end and we're on to the next thing. Um, and with data products, you know, those that are being used hopefully will change because they've been in use and we get refinement. And so there was this reflection that because product durability wasn't being seen in the project deliverables, they would be done and then would be turned it over to operational support for maintenance is that that voice of the customer never gets taken out of the life cycle of a product. And, and we thought that was such an important point to, to actually staff it accordingly. Uh-huh. So do they, does your product management group then, do they, do they kind of lead this, you know, human centered effort to make sure the, these data products are, are built with the <laughs> around desirable outcomes, what really with that focus on outcomes or, or do they facilitate the design process and all of that, or is that coming uh, more from your group? And how does that, how do you work with them? Yeah. So uh, the analytics product manager sits within my organization. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and to be clear, we have one of those roles, right? right. And so it's, it's an evolution of understanding and maturity, but healthcare, as you've cited, is really complex. Oftentimes we do feel like a cog in the wheel because it does, it is so complex and there's so many participants involved, mm-hmm. but, but one of the things that's fun about that also is that it's a multidisciplinary problem. Mm-hmm. Our informaticians are working with our clinical frontline workers on workflows and optimizing those kinds of things. They're, they're a part of that equation. Our application teams who are actually building interfaces are a part of that team because those interfaces will effectively capture data that we'll be able to use later in data products or feedback to them. Of course, our clinical and frontline workers are, are critical components of that user story and being able to craft that so the, the reality is it is a multidisciplinary problem, even though our analytics product manager is just one of those people driving the conversation to completion. Um, it, it, it really is just a part of part of an overall strategy. Sure, sure. And do you have uh, designers uh, involved in this uh, process as well or not, not so much? Uh, we have people who play those roles. Um, uh-huh. We do have a wonderful uh, chief experience officer and she has a whole team that does experience design. And so we tap into her group. Mm -hmm. We're absolutely amazing. But in our group, we're, um, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of things uh, through our bootstraps, as they say. Got it. Got it. Can you tell me more about how you interface uh, with them? And and I I assume, well, maybe incorrectly, but they're probably doing a fair amount of this research, potentially some of this frontline research. 
Um, yeah, so we do. So we have a number of bodies, governance bodies, a number of groups around the organization. Some are focused on uh, providers, you know, physicians. Uh, so uh-huh. Others are, are focused on nursing workflows. Others, HR and, and internal shared services functions like HR and finance. And a good example is we're developing a, a program uh, to allow patients to express gratitude to their provider and the organization. And so hmm. uh, that team is actually creating an experience so that it reduces friction in the process, gets us really good transitions of touch points. So there's a lot of touch points in patient care and, and the provider can't be expected to do all those things. So uh, having the experience design folks actually building that patient-centered experience uh, is absolutely key. And and I think fun to, fun to be part of if if I if I could go uh, give up my wonderful career in analytics, it would it would definitely be in user experience design. <laughs> nice. Well, that that's that sounds really interesting. And, and so this this sounds good, but tell me about the journey to get to this point where you're quote, doing things this way. Was there resistance to to kind of this human centered approach, this design thinking approach? Did, did it feel hand wavy at all to, to some of the people you're working with? Did it have to kind of be pushed on them a bit before the, the value became obvious? Like what, what was that like? So recognize that it's a journey. Uh, we're not, you know, at the destination uh, sure. today. Uh, we still sell every day as to why user-centered uh, design is, is critical. The good news is our chief experience officer was here about two years prior to, to me joining. Uh-huh. Um, so she had already laid the groundwork and the language about how we design experiences for team members and patients. For me, I was simply coming on board uh, and applying it in a different domain that is in the world of data products. And so right. uh, the, the ground was fertile. There's still a lot of confusion and in this understanding of the difference between a product manager and say a project manager. Uh-huh. You know, there was, there was a lot of work um, to help people understand the difference and why we need someone uh, in those roles. And a great example is, you know, when I first got here, you know, Biden has about 13,000 team members and we were dealing with requests from 13,000 people. Uh, And one of the first thing we did is uh, is a wholesale stakeholder analysis where we looked at um, who truly are our customers and we narrowed it down to 18. Um, It might seem like a big jump, but it's given us voice. It's given us the ability to have have a conversation at the highest levels about what our priorities are. Where should we be spending our time? And and the reality is, we took we went from 365 um, tickets, if you will, and backlog for requests to zero, and we did that in nine months, all by focusing on the conversation about what's important. Wow, that's that's a pretty significant. So this. Kind of dovetails my next question, but how does one get from 10,000 10, unused reports to, well, A, knowing that they're not used and not important to actually being able to just get rid of them, which sometimes can be hard. It's sometimes really hard to like take something away if there's one person using, you know, yeah. <laughs> how, yeah. how, did, how did you do that? And same same process or like? Yes. So it's interesting. So one of the things we looked at is what what was actually being used. And we, we our first pass at decommissioning was if it hadn't been used in the last 24 months. We just turned it off. Mm-hmm. There was no conversation about it. Um, and, and some of those have, have, have crept back in and said, hey, wait a second. I do this every three years for some accreditation. We're like, great. So we rewrote it in a newer technology. And, and, and those were pretty minor. 
But you mentioned utilization, right? So how do we know whether something is successful? I firmly believe that we need to design in um, and consider a persona that might be left out in a lot of our, our analytics products. And that is, um, as a analytics leader, I'm a persona, I'm a stakeholder in the design of that product. And we're requiring in all of our products heretofore are, are actually taking into account my needs as a stakeholder. I need to know who's using this, when's the last time they were using it, how long did they stay on pages, all the stuff that you would normally expect, but often gets left out of analytics products because we don't consider the, the, the actual analytic developer as being a, uh, a, a key stakeholder in that. Knowing that, that we're gonna design in, need to understand utilization and stickiness to data products, if you will, is critical. Sometimes um, there was a lot of work that went on to get us to an understanding of what was actually being used but I think we've done a great job at actually shifting that. So now that all data products require um, some measure of utilization, some metrics associated with how we're going to measure their their effectiveness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool, cool. I, I like I, I like that because it kind of takes away this. You know, we can do something, throw it over the wall, and then check off that we accomplished something. Yeah, that's like the beginning of the journey, not the end, right? Like, okay, now that's it's right. there. Now we get to see if anyone uses it to do something. This is the beginning. It's not the end. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Let's shift over to uh, ethics a little bit here. And you, you'd mentioned the word empathy earlier, which is really kind of the foundation of, of doing, you know, creating human-centered experiences and products and solutions. So tell me about how you're approaching ethical AI and, and, and your playbook around, around that. Yeah. Um, so this is one of the areas that I think is just fundamental to what we do. And and at the end of the day, I tell people um, our mission is to deliver data that people can trust in a way that's usable and actionable, built on a foundation of data literacy and dexterity. Um, That trust in the first part of our our, our core core mission uh, is essential. If I deliver data that's wrong uh, or inconsistent, or somebody shows up with a different report reporting a different metric, then I've lost all credibility. And the same is true with with AI models um, is what was the process and and, and my staff will will probably uh, um, cringe when they hear me say that. But, you know, I often say if we develop something in a robust and repeatable manner, then the outcomes are often um, robust and repeatable. And so we've taken a risk based approach to assessing how we validate every data product that we that we deliver. If. For example, it has broad reach, broad implications, or a large number of patients that could be affected with a decision that is based off of the data that we deliver, that's high risk. If it's a one-off, which we hope we don't ever do, but sometimes we do uh, what are called investigative research uh, programs, where we're just investigating the order of magnitude, so it just has to be directionally correct, um, then we'll do a different level. of. of, uh, So we we quantify that in, in the risk matrix and depending on where you fall in that risk matrix, then the level of validation that goes into that becomes critical. That serves as input to our AI playbook. Whether we're engaging in an outside vendor to adopt one of their commercially available uh, AI models, whether we've developed it in-house or we've acquired a model through a partnership or collaboration from another organization, they all follow the same core principles, which is we will do proactive testing against algorithmic bias. So I wrote a paper uh, back in the fall um, for the North Carolina Medical Journal 
on ethics and AI and really focused on this idea of algorithmic bias and how do we prevent that in, in getting into our data products. And I, I, think it's, I think it's a critical thing. We'd rather do fewer things and do them well than do lots of things and fail. Mm-hmm. What what are some of the challenges you have on the on the non the non technical side of 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 using some of these more predictive and prescriptive technologies uh, at Vident? Yeah. So the number one rule that I have when we go to develop a predictive model is that we have consensus in our workflows, processes, best practice protocols, whatever you want to call it, for how we respond to something uh, given a target variable. So let's say we're trying to predict something, uh, a patient is is septic or not. Um, Pretty important thing to get right, but more importantly is what do we do about it from a clinical perspective if we we don't do it right? And fundamental to any development of an AI model, we must agree clinically on what is the course of action to take. If we don't have that, then we we really ought not to be even talking about a predictive model because we're going to see variation of response and our predictive value will continue to be eroded by um, inconsistent variations in process. And so I think that's probably one of our biggest challenges. The second is the identification of high value use cases. And part of what we're trying to do is elevate the understanding of what can AI do for us. For example, um, recently I presented to our senior leadership team on what we're doing in AI. What is it? What are its implications? What are the high value target use cases? And there's lots of things that we could do but which ones are the things going to matter? And, and the way we think about those is those that are aligned to our strategic priorities are the ones that we're going to be focused on. But getting people to um, put energy into validation, into input as to feature selection, all of those things, requires conversation in a new language. Um, and I think that that's, that's one of the things, if, any, if I could claim a superpower, it would be the ability to actually bridge the conversation between business and technical uh, folks, but that, that's a, that's a, uh, there's a rate limiting factor there with, with me. And so that's not a universal language that either our business speaks tech or our technical people speak business. And so I think we just have to strive to get better and better and better at that so that we can make sure we're bridging those gaps because you can't do it. I think any organization who builds models and thinks it's a technical exercise is going to, is going to fail. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. And I, the, the skill set here. So how, how do you go about scaling this, right? So that you don't have, you know, only one person that can do this. Is this a, a training issue? Do you train the technical people to get, to get better at doing this, the data people, your data scientists and analytics people, or do you train the product and business line frontline managers to come to a data group with more informed uh, problem statements and things like that? How do you, what, how will you scale that? Yep. Great question. So as part of our analytics enablement program, we've actually developed a course, a curriculum around question design, really intended for our business people who want to be able to ask questions of data, Mm -hmm. but don't need to get into the technical details. So I actually think it's both, right? So we've got to make sure that people can ask questions in, in our, uh, our chief operating officer for the health system and I are going to be going rolling a, a program out um, to actually help people create some awareness of why this is important. The fundamentals of question design and being able to get to the crux of an issue. You know, you can ask a question and get 10 different answers depending on how you, how the person that um, 
actually interpreted that question, you know, it could be could be all over the place. And on the other side, as you point out, the technical people have to get better. We have to get better. I'll I'll classify myself as a technical person. Have to get better at extracting need in a way that is understandable, interpretable, and and really actionable from a technology perspective. And and you know, it's it's like teaching someone a language they never knew they needed. You know, there's a lot of resistance to it. What what kinds of resistance? Um. Well, from the technical side, we often hear, "Why can't they just tell us what, 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 what? You know, why can't they just answer the questions? Why can't they just tell us what they need?" Um, you know, but but it's much like Steve Jobs. If he had asked people what they wanted in a mobile phone, they probably would not have described the iPhone, right? And so, it's a little bit of creativity that is not typical of the skill set of of a traditionally technical person. And and on the and I hear these dialogues all the time and. It, it's really quite comical because no matter what I, I spent 20 years in consulting and, and the conversation was the same pretty much every organization business people would say you know i need x and and the the, the technical people would say well send me your requirements and they and the business person would say well tell me what's possible and and this would be this circular conversation yeah and we introduced design thinking into our consulting practice about five years ago as a way to bridge that conversation. It was tremendously successful. Once you start talking about empathy, it's really tough for technical people to revert back to send me a requirement because they you've completely changed their dialogue. Yeah, the power of the why question and <laughs> you know I fully fully agree with you on that. And and I think I think for technical people listening to this, I think you have to check it at the door. If you if you make the assumption that someone necessarily knows what they actually need, because they may be requesting, it's like the leading indicator, right? They don't know. It's the the analogy like the cast on the arm. Doctor, I need a cast, and and your your response should not be okay. What color should it be, and how thick <laughs> would you like it? That's not the you know. It's, well, no, we're going to do a diagnosis. Why do you think you need a cat? Well, my arm hurts. And you have to go through a diagnosis there. And some people will be better at saying, no, I actually really do need a cast. And I can tell you why I need a cast. And here's the problem space. That sounds great, I think, for a technical person to receive that type of request. But that's like, a, at least in my work, that's a myth that I, even with my own clients, they don't come to me with that well-formed of a problem definition. It needs to be unpacked. So whether you're doing that work, if you're on the data science or analytics side, or if you're on the product management side, somebody needs to be doing this work. And I think it's mostly a team. It's a team sport. It's not, you can't have a conversation with one person anyways. Uh, and you definitely can't have a good product conversation without talking to an actual end user as well. But you, we, we have to check those assumptions at the door that, that someone actually knew exactly what they needed. And it sounds bad in a way, like when you say it that way, like, well, you don't, you're, this is your whole department and you don't know what you need. But we make assumptions about what the other person knows about our space and our domain and what, what you might think is totally obvious that isn't to somebody else. Uh, and so I think this whole design, the, the, the design process helps us be objective and, and open ourselves up to not knowing and then getting to a place where we start to know and, and we carefully prototype quickly to fail quickly and then learn, you know, moving forward without, you know, doing a giant technology investment in something that may not pay off. Uh, yeah. And then it doesn't build yeah. trust. And you have, you know, people don't trust you. Not, not so much that you're a liar and a cheat, but like, I can't depend on this group to deliver goods. It takes forever. 
and whatever I get back, I can't use it. It, it didn't really help. And by the way, it's too late now. Like I'm already on to the next thing. It's like, whatever, just throw it in the report drawer and shut it. You know, 10,001. You know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, it's interesting. So I'm going to steal that analogy about the cast because that's perfect for what we often encounter and certainly will resonate in, in this environment. You mentioned right. something that I, w- I want to add to, which is this idea of failing fast. That's a cultural mindset shift that I think has been challenging for us as an organization as well as, hey, we're going to do a project. We're going to be successful. Here's what the measures of success are. And oftentimes the measure of success are, you know, we did it on time, on budget, you know, within scope. Um, and, and being able to create an innovation culture where learning is the measure of success is absolutely a mindset shift that is, is really hard. I don't know what your experience has been. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, no one, no one really wants to spend money and time and resources on that unless it's a really enlightened leader. But I think deep down inside, they, you know, the, the, the smart executive knows that innovation doesn't have, you don't, you don't bat 900 when you're doing innovation. (laughs) You know what I mean? You bat like 200, like, or, you know, you suck. It takes a long time to, let alone to build in a repeatable process to do innovation. That means that you obviously went through some type of of fail process and then you learn and you 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 inform it going forward before you can have a pattern of doing it so and it's hard to swallow that and i think that's why starting small uh, using small projects uh, i like using small teams uh, and, and you kind of you build it out that way through a little kernel you know and and try yeah. to spread it that way as opposed to implementing it top down as a we're, we're now going to do innovate innovation you know, right. that's our right. mission. You know, it's like, good luck. You know, it, it doesn't generally work to, to try to shift the whole organization. So find a small project. Uh, I, I think finding the right minded people for that. But you also have to provide a runway to, for, for that group to do it. And someone has to say, this might not work, but we can use design thinking to help us fail a little bit earlier and to know what we learned from it and then push it forward so that people understand why are we, why is this not working? And then you can factor that in maybe to the next pass. Uh, and, and as opposed to just like this project is now nine months behind, no one really knows why. And now all we're, me- all we're measuring, at least in my experience, we're measuring code check-ins and bug reports that we've squashed and commits and how many sprints did we finish. And oh, we are using Agile, so we're doing something right. And it's like, well, you, all we're doing now is me- measuring engineering uh, activities. Because we're not, we're totally disconnected now from whether or not any of this is going to matter. And it's easy to measure that, right? Because you can count the bugs, you can count the sprints, you can count the, the, you know, the number of Git commits. And (laughs) I don't know if that's how it is on your end, but um, it's tough. You know, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. The classic adage is what, tell me how someone's measured, I'll tell you how they behave, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. If you measure by lines of code, guess what? I'm not going to be efficient in my code. Yeah. So, so given where you are now and your experience here, is, is, there, is there something you would have changed since you kind of got into this whole data, the, this data space and, and health? Like, you know, if you were starting over 10 years ago, is there something you would change about where you are now or how you uh, approach your work? That's an that's a existential question. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I had done it this way 
you know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I don't think I would have changed anything. Mm-hmm. I may have, um, uh, I, I may have um, spent a little less time on learning new things, mm-hmm. and and um, perhaps more time on um, developing deeper relationships with with some of my customers. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I think the human centeredness of what we do is just so critical. Uh, so that's, that's probably the one area that, you know, how, how are they incentivized? What, what keeps them up at night? You know, so I could have been a better designer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I kind of like to, this has been a super great conversation. I, I really appreciate you, you sharing, sharing these insights about what's going on at Viden and some of the, the nuggets from the analytics lifecycle toolkit. Um, is there one thing you would like give as a takeaway from this conversation or that you'd like to share with, with people listening, you know, people in the data science field, analytics leaders, uh, technical product managers, is there something they, they should walk away from um, that, that you think is important? Um, you can't, I, I think the big one for me, and this is, this, uh, I'm, I'm acutely aware of this challenge for, for myself is um, you cannot underestimate the power of, collaboration and multidisciplinary perspectives mm-hmm. and getting buy-in. Um, and that's really what design thinking is all about is getting that understanding, that empathy, truly understanding how to walk in someone's shoes. I see so many analysts throughout the, the world, even in Kaggle contests, where we, we want to apply the technical processes and procedures and code without truly thinking through. And, and I, I did this in my class at Duke. I, I taught um, machine learning at, at, um, in the graduate program at, at uh, Fuqua School of Business. And people view data science oftentimes as a technical journey um, that we need to understand the features and we need to understand what methods are appropriate. And let me see if I can get the model fit statistics to work right. And even if you spend just a little bit of time answering some fundamental empathy type questions, even if you don't have an opportunity to interact with those, but just put yourself in the shoes of someone and try to empathy, empathize. How am I going to use this data? What is my mindset? What am I thinking? I, I think when I see teams that do that in the, in my courses, you know, we do a lot of team, team projects. They're far more successful than the people who view it as a technical exercise. And feature selection is really all about understanding behavior um, and the other thing that I encourage people to do is learn as much as you can about behavioral economics as possible. Um, understanding incentives that drive the world around us are essential to, do, to being successful in it. Awesome. Well, there's some great, great uh, inputs there for, for furthering your career if you want to. <laughs> and I, I, I would second everything you said here. The, this is the, if there's one thing that I've heard from most of the, uh, the leaders in the data and analytics space, uh, with regards particularly to data scientists is finding this other missing skill set, which is not the technical skill set. It's understanding the human behavioral piece and really being able to connect the fact that your technical work does does have bear the this this soft skill stuff, the qualitative aspects here, the learning about human behavior very much has relevance and to feature selection, as you said, and 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 building models that are actually going to uh, you know, produce some type of useful outcome. So uh, I, I, I full plus one to everything you just said there. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today and excited about the work that you're doing and look forward to developing more evangelists throughout the community at large. Cool. Well, thank you. And and how can uh, listeners uh, follow uh, your work? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Where, where, are, you, where are you at? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Gregory S. Nelson, uh, and uh, it'll be it'll be fun to uh, connect with other like-minded folks. Great, awesome. Well, I will definitely put uh, a link uh, there to your uh, both of those places. And uh, again, we've had uh, Greg Nelson here today from Vident Health, uh, VP of Analytics and Strategy. Thank you for uh, coming on, experiencing data, and sharing your thoughts. Thanks, Brian. Cool. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencing data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.